BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hi, everyone. This is Yael Averbush West. Welcome back to Football Americana, a 90-min podcast. Today, I'm talking to my good friend, Megan Rapino, or Pino as I call her. Let's get right into it. So I'm very excited to talk to my longtime friend today, born and raised in Redding, California, two-time World Cup winner, Olympic gold medalist, Ballon d'Or winner, icon, activist. I could keep going on the list. You guys may have heard of her before, someone by the name of Megan Rapino. Uh, but Pino, I'm curious, you know, when I read out your bio, how do you feel? Was that always your dream as a kid to like have this resume or is this something that just came into your life? Like how, how do you think of what you've done so far in your career? No, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, no, it's always like sort of weird and uncomfortable. I don't even know what I dreamt of as a kid. Like Obviously I wanted, I mean, I wanted to be a professional athlete. Like I can remember watching the Olympics, watching Michael Jordan, like, you know, mostly men's sports, um, obviously when I was younger, but definitely like the 99 world cup and like wanting that, but not really knowing exactly what that was just like wanting to be, you know, a professional athlete. Um, and now it's like literally all like come true in this really just totally insane way. And obviously having 2019, that was just like not even on this planet. It was so bizarre. So even now, it's just like bizarre and hilarious and, and honestly like a little bit not embarrassing because obviously I'm very proud of what I did, but it's just like, oh my gosh, this is wild. And I think, as you know, I feel like anyone who knows me knows I don't like take it all too seriously. I'm like serious about what I do, but I just am like, this is just wild. I can't believe it. <laughs> well, no, that's why I think it's funny. Sometimes, you know, I've known you for so long. And then when I read the bio, I'm like, whoa, this is, <laughs> if I just heard that, you know, you, I'd be like really nervous for this conversation. So yeah. is there, is there one thing on there that you feel most proud of? Oh, or that I didn't gosh. say that's part of your resume? Thank yeah. You. Um, I mean, obviously the world cups, I mean, that's just, you know, I think, you know, particularly 2019 because of I think what it meant so much beyond the sport. Um, I mean, as you know, sort of, you know, growing up playing on the national team and just sort of being around the, that environment, it's like, you're just expected to win. So when you do, it's almost like a little bit of a relief in a way you're like so excited, but it's a little bit of a relief because that's always the standard. But I think what we've been able to do off the field and like literally being a part of this changing world around us and, you know, being some of the people that are changing it for the better is something that I'm like just beyond proud of. 
Um, but yeah, I, I think the world cup in 2019, we had, you know, so much pressure and we put more pressure on ourselves and the lawsuit and just the fanfare and everything. It was just a, a wild, really just kind of like amazing ride. So probably that one's like cherry on top. Yeah. Well, we're definitely going to get back to a lot of that, but before we do, I want to talk a little bit about uh, young Megan growing up and your soccer upbringing. Speak a little bit about, you know, your soccer upbringing, how you were raised in the game, some of your coaches growing up. Um, like how was, how was your start in this sport? I mean, I feel like it was pretty different than a lot of people. I'm from uh, like a smaller town in Northern California. Uh, we're about two and a half hours from Sacramento, which is kind of like the the first like, you know, big hub um, in the state uh, closest to us. And we just didn't play a lot of high level soccer growing up. We like, you know, we're playing like rec, I think when we were like 11 and 12. Um, and then it was like, okay, we're going to, you know, I think my dad um, and a couple other parents, like they were like, okay, these, these kids are actually pretty good. We had a group of girls um, in our, that we, we played everything. Like from the time we all grew up, we were like, all the best at basketball, all the best at soccer, all it's like, you know, a lot of people went on to, you know, play different sports or whatever. So we were just kind of like this ragtag bunch of like athletes, basically. It wasn't even like we were, you know, sort of drilled in soccer and everyone kind of had their different sort of favorites. Um, I played on a, a boys club team as well for like a year, Rachel and I, um, my twin sister. Um, and we didn't really start playing like very competitive soccer we had we were we had like a class one team well this is like everything's different now too it's like i don't know all of the acronyms and what kids are doing and where they're playing and it seems very different but class one was like the highest level basically that you could play we had like a reading team and we played basically in the sacramento league and when i say we got our asses kicked every single game like we just got dominated the entire year we would lose like six to two, six to three, seven to two, seven, you know, but it was like, I was scoring goals and Rachel was scoring goals. And there was a couple of players on our team that were actually, you know, pretty good. So that's how we kind of got seen in Sacramento by basically being everybody's, you know, whipping team in the league that we played for the year before. Um, and I think we were soft, maybe freshmen, freshmen or sophomores in high school. I can't remember exactly. Um, when we started just playing in Sacramento, um, we would go down to practice once a week. I think our sophomore and junior year, we went down to practice once a week and then obviously played on the weekends. And then our senior year, we didn't, um, go down for that practice anymore because it was just too much. And it was clear we were already like going to be getting a scholarship. So my parents were like, we probably skip the, we'll probably skip the practice. It was a lot, but it was kind of unusual. And I'm like going on this like, you know, long ramp, but I feel like it took me a long time well out of college to really figure out what practice meant and how important it was. And like, what was the point of actually practicing? Because I just didn't do it a lot. Like I would, I was playing basketball during the week, frankly, and like, you know, playing, I never played high school soccer. We never played on our soccer team because we wanted to play basketball and it was during the winter and we would just kind of like play basketball during the week and then show up on the weekends and like, you know, just do our best and, um, you know, play games. And obviously you're playing like a thousand games on the weekend. So it took me as I, I'm sure most people who played with me, especially when I was younger can attest to, it took me a long time to figure out what the hell practice was all about and what the point was. And that when you get to a different level, 
you have to practice well if you want to actually even see the field. So I had sort of this, you know, long winding unconventional. We played a little bit of ODP, which was like the state teams. We did that one year that just ended up being way too much travel and too much money for us at the time. So we kind of didn't do that. Just stayed on the tournament circuit and um, stayed West coast when we went to school in Portland. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because that's certainly a different journey. And especially nowadays, uh, you know, you you tell kids, everyone has their own journey and not that many players actually do it differently. Um, so it's interesting to hear. Did you, you know, were you a fan of the game? Did you understand the larger soccer culture? Did you watch at all? Or was there, was there a way to watch? You know, I was, I feel really lucky for these couple of coaches that I had along the way. So obviously my dad, um, you know, shout out to Jimbo, but like, he's not really totally understanding all, all that, uh, it entails to, you know, know the game, but he sort of organized everything. He found this guy, Tefra, um, I think he was like Northern African descent. Um, but he was, I don't know why he was living in Reading. Um, but he was basically like the trainer of our team. And so very early on, we kind of had this, you know, sort of different vibe. Obviously he, he grew up playing soccer, um, and was really influential on us on a, at a, at a young age. And then when we went and starting to play in Sacramento, Danny Cruz and Seth Boyle, uh, were two of our coaches when we played for Elk Grove that just did things differently. It, it just you know, I was never, and I still am not, um, not the fastest, not the biggest, not the strongest, not the most, you know, all of the athletic things. And I feel like I did sort of, when I played on the state team or would go, um, you know, to a regional camp, like that's what it was a lot of the times. And I was like, you know, five, three or five, five and like skinny and just, you know, not dominating anyone, but I could find pockets of space. And I feel like they really instilled that creativity in me and like allowing that creativity to happen and allowing me to play free, allowing me to try things and encouraging that. And like, not just being like, Oh, you can go out there and do whatever you want, but really sort of like facilitating the understanding of when and why, and, you know, yes, you're, you're getting into these little pockets of space. And this is, this is a good thing. Like, this is how you're going to break someone down. Maybe not, you know, run around them or be faster than them or stronger than them, but Um, I feel like they really saw that kind of, I guess, potential or talent from a young age and then just working on different sort of technical aspects. Like we talk all the time, this is your line, but like the biggest problem in American soccer is the fact that no one knows how to kick the ball with all the surfaces that are available to them with both feet. And they taught me that, like, that's where I learned how to bend a ball. That's where I learned how to bend the ball with the outside of my foot. That's where I learned how to, you know, cut a ball and, you know, strike a ball long distance or a long pass on the floor. Like they were the ones that sort of instilled those little things to me that I feel like took longer to translate, but I had them. And so when I was, you know, more mature and more physically mature and my game kind of developed, it was like, those are the things that are going to take you to the next level because when you get to the top level, like everyone's fast, everyone's smart, everyone is, you know, at a, at a certain physical level and then it's kind of like how well you can understand the game after that. Yeah. And do you have a, mem- a first memory of either U.S. soccer or a, a, you know, watching a, you know, a women's game or thinking, you know, I could do that. I could play at the highest level. I mean, it was definitely coming up to the 99 World Cup. I'd seen them play maybe once or twice before. Um 
maybe like in, gosh, I want to say like 97 or 98. So I kind of knew, um, I went to the men's world cup in 94. So I was, I was born in 85. So it was like, I was like nine years old, but it just wasn't on like TV. So it's like, we knew it, it was like sort of around, but I was like, you know, watching the Super Bowl and the NBA finals and watching the Olympics. And there was just really not a lot of women's sports available. So it was like in, in definitely not soccer at that time. So I think like the MLS had kind of started what around like 96 or something. Um, and then after obviously the 99 world cup was just hugely influential. We got to go to a couple games. We, we went to the semifinal game, Brazil and us. I think it was in the Bay area. And that was just like, Oh my God, is this like a thing? Is this real? Cause this, this looks fun. And <laughs> this is what I want to do for sure. Yeah. And do you have a, you know, a a moment where you feel like you said like, oh, I've kind of quote unquote made it or you first realized like, oh, now, now I'm a role model to someone else. Like when in your journey did that kind of hit or, you know, how recent was that? Maybe. Oh gosh. Um, Oh gosh. I don't even know. I don't even know. I mean, I felt like I feel like my biggest surreal moment was playing with Lil when she was at the end of her career and we were kind of at the beginning and that, and she was just like so down to earth and so cool. And we had like, you know, heard a little bit of stories about some, I don't know how you want to say competitiveness between the older players and the younger players uh, that were kind of in our generation, especially a lot, you know, like the Hayos and stuff that came very early. And Lil was just like, amazing and she knew exactly where she was at in her career she knew exactly where we were at and she kind of just you know had that sort of mentorship but also just like would just say shit and like cut through all of the bullshit are we allowed to cuss on this i feel like i'm cussing a couple of times but go for it we need real talk or whatever we need real talk (laughs) um she would just kind of cut through the bullshit like you know i always especially in the beginning probably because i like didn't go to practice a lot and wasn't doing any sort of like you know organized training in a lot of ways. The fitness thing was always just, you know, such a stress and you have to really like learn how to do that. And obviously Lil was one of the fittest and, you know, best players ever. And she was just like, yeah, you know, like it's hard for everyone. Like it's hard for me. And I was like, Oh, it's not just hard for me. (laughs) I'm not (laughs) the only one struggling. (laughs) Like I'm just running hard in general. Um, so I feel like her taking me under my wing was like, oh my gosh, like I'm on the national team now. And like Christine Lilly is like my mentor and this is totally insane. Um, and then maybe like coming back from the world cup in 2011, even though we had lost, um, I feel like we had sort of changed things. There was a different narrative of, you know, I, I, I think there was like literally five or 8,000 people at our send off game on the way there and coming back, it was a whole different situation. And I think the kind of like very beginning of, um, you know, the sort of re-rise of um, the U S women's national team. So I think those two kind of moments are, and then obviously everything now is pretty wild. Yeah. So let's talk, you know, briefly, you were talking about yourself as a player and some of the things as a youth player that you feel like you learned that were skills that everybody needs that maybe unfortunately (laughs) everyone doesn't have, but what do you think now makes you most special? Cause if I think about you as a player, um, you certainly have skills and capabilities, but you know, some players you look at and you say, okay, they do this one thing and like nobody can stop them. And I feel like you have this, you, you have a knack for being in those big moments and, and executing in those big moments. 
are you able to pinpoint a specific skill or is it a mindset or is it, you know, your, your positional awareness? What is it that allows you to, in so many big moments, you know, be the one that we're seeing doing your iconic celebration or, you know, making it happen, you know, when it, there's so much pressure on. I mean, I want those moments. I want, I live for those moments. I have to do all this other shit in the quiet with no eyeballs. That frankly is really hard. I'll working out on your own. And like, you know, I spend a lot of my time out East in the winter, which means a lot of cold and a lot of snow and a lot of like just terrible training where I'm like, this is so awful. I can't even believe I'm doing this to get to the moment where you're, you know, at Stade de France or at, you know, Parc de Prince and you get to, you know, go out there and play. But it's like, I always want the ball. I always, you know, whether it's, you know, just the normal game or World Cup game or whatever it is, like, I, I want to be in those moments. I'd like to be in those moments. I feel like all you can do is want that. And then the game sort of takes care of itself. Like I, I always tell people, even just with penalties, it's like the worst possible thing that could happen in a penalty shootout is you're the kick taker in like the world cup final and you miss it and you lose it for your whole country. I mean, I don't know. It's like, Minor, it's terrible. Yeah. yeah it's, it's awful. But like, if you make it, you know, you can have the opposite of that. So I don't know what that is uh, about me. I mean, I think I, you know, I, trust in myself and trust in my teammates. And, you know, it's just, I, I just always want to be available in that way. I think too, like, like you said, a lot of players have, you know, they're, you know, they're quick or, you know, they can get out on the break or whatever it is. I think for me, I'm always trying to exploit matchups and exploit space on the field for me and all the people that play around me. Uh, I mean, that's why I love playing with Crystal so much. I'm like, I have this, like, just a unicorn behind me. There's like nothing like her. So I'm like, okay, how can I move to get her space or where is she moving that it's like, you can't, you can't match up with all of us. You know, it's like if me and her and Lindsay are playing on the same side and Lindsay's playing in our pocket, I'm like, good luck. One of us is going to get the ball and I don't really care who gets it. And I don't think they care either. So it's just what's the other team doing? How are we exploiting matchups? How can we, uh, you know, punish teams for if they're overcompensating or, I mean, I see this in the NWSL a lot. Teams kind of set up, shifted a little bit more to my side. And I'm like, that's fine. I'll get it in the buildup and switch it to someone who's wide open. And then we can sort of work from there. So I, I try to, you know, not think like, Oh, I have to get the ball and I have to be the one scoring the goal. or I have to make, the assist that's just like not going to be realistic. I can't do that. I'm I, I'm not just going to like dribble through everyone. And my game's never been about like, let me get this one-on-one -on -one and then, you know, beat everyone. So I think it's mostly about like using, I guess, my mind and like my ability to find space to exploit it for myself and, and for my teammates, which is difficult because then I'm not always doing the same thing. I'm happy to get the ball isolated, you know, on the wing and go one V one. I'm happy to come inside. I'm, I'm happy to do other things. It's really like, whatever you're going to give me, I'm going to exploit that until you stop giving it to me. And then you've given up something else. You know, it's, it's so interesting to hear you say this because I, I've seen you and play with, with you and just on TV so many times, but what you're saying is so obvious in a sense, like you're a competitor and you're a performer, you are living for these big moments. But I think actually a lot of players, and I think of myself in this mix, 
like live for the other side of it, the training side and the stuff that you're saying you kind of didn't do or appreciate over the years because you were doing it for those moments. Whereas a lot of us, I think, had it kind of maybe flipped, like we're doing the bulk of the work and we learned to enjoy that so much that when you get in the big moments, it was almost like, oh, wait, why? <laughs> you know, I'm here, but I'm used to the training part. So it's really interesting to hear, um, you know, how, how you viewed your uh, development as a player. Is there something that you feel like you've improved the most since you came on the scene with the national team, besides maybe the understanding of the fitness that you got from a little bit? <laughs> I mean, I think honestly, the, 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 all of the off field stuff, because at this level, you just, you don't get to play. I don't care how talented you are. Like you don't get to play unless you perform all that time. Like we don't have four games on the weekend anymore. We, you know, you don't get to just be And of course, when you're younger, it's like, of course I was one of the best players. Like if I've gotten to this, every one of us who's played on the national team, you know, played at a high level, played professionally, you were one of the best players. So you could just get away with a lot. So I think for me, the learning to train has opened up my game as well, because it's like, I'm not just, you know, running to run, or I'm not just working on these free kicks or these crosses or whatever. That's actually fine tuning everything. And I try to, you know, put, put things in a functional sense where I'm, um, you know, maximizing the training that I'm doing and, um, you know, training as smart as possible. But I do think it's like the physical side, um, especially as I've gotten older, um, you know, I had my ACL, my third ACL in, in the end of 2015, which is right about the time I was 30. It's like things change for an athlete. When you're 30, you either keep doing the same thing and your career ends probably like in two years or you do something different and maybe you get, you know, another number of years out of it. But I think the like the focus and the discipline in the training allowed me to not kind of go in and out of games as well. Cause that's what was happening. Um, when I got a little bit older, I think Mark Krikorian, um, shout out to the national championship. Congrats to Mark and Florida state on that. But he, he'll never forget. He pulled me aside. We were, uh, at the, what's formerly known as home Depot. That's what we'll always call it. Um, out in LA, I think we were in a training game and I was just like plunking along, you know, just feeling like I'm having a great game, just doing whatever. And he like pulled me over and he's like, are you sick? Or like, are you not feeling well? And I was like, no, I feel great. Why? What's going on? He was like, well, you're playing terrible. You're like not in it at all. And I think just, I would, I would just float in and out of games. If the game came to me, great. I would, you know, do, do what I did. But if it didn't, then it was like, whatever. Or if I wasn't, I think I didn't even realize how much lack of focus and lack of discipline. So I think that part of it, you know, especially in the last probably six, seven years, um, Laura Harvey is a, a, a tribute a ton to just challenging me more on the tactical side of the game and how I can exploit that uh, black or the same. I mean, I've been especially in light of what has happened this year in the NWSL. I, I just, I can't even overstate how incredibly lucky and thankful I am that I've had those two, um, coaches for as long as I did. And I was able to, in the prime of my career, grow and develop and be like challenged by some of the best minds in the game. So I think that sort of that focus that I learned in training and training in the off season and practice kind of shifted over to the game as well as like, you should be thinking every single second of the game. You should, your eyes should be darting around all game long. You should constantly, if Kirsten Press has the ball on the opposite wing, 
Like I have a very, very important role to play and where's my positioning and defensively. And am I getting on the end of a cross? Am I cutting back? What's everyone doing? What's their body? Like everybody should be thinking every single part of the game. And that's definitely something that I had to, had to learn. Yeah. And it's, I think it's really interesting for people to hear the continuing evolution of people who are already great. You know, you're already on the national team. We're not talking about you were failing in your career and up until that point, but to mm-hmm. hear about how much people can actually evolve and improve while you're already at the top, I think is pretty, um, pretty interesting for everyone to hear. So one thing too, I think in just, I'll say quickly on that point in the women's game, it's changing. It's like a six month lifespan of the style of play. And it's just like, since I feel like since 2011, like that's when I feel like I became like even aware it's just like the amount that the game is turning over, how different the world cup in 2015 was to 2019 to what it's going to be in 23 is like massive. So it's like every year, the evolution of the game is changing. If you don't change with that, then you just, you literally are like non-existent in a matter of a year or two years. And we've seen it with, um, you know, a couple of players are just like around the world, but just the, the sort of exponential growth of the women's game is incredible at this point. So it kind of demands you having that like mental aspect of it, I think. Yeah. And I want to dig a little more into that then. So where, who do you think is on the forefront of that either club wise or country wise? Um, like, you know, we, we often talk about who's the best women's league in the world and at NWSL, we hope we are, but we kind of know that there are others out there who are, do have some really, really phenomenal teams. So who do you see as leading the charge there? Or is it just a, a general evolution? Well, if if at any time the Spanish want to calm down and just slow their roll a little bit and the team at Barcelona, if they would just like turn it down a couple notches, <laughs> that would be great. The Spanish team's been coming for like four or five years now. Um, obviously, you know, Alexis taking home the Ballon d'Or is the best player this year. Um, so well-deserved. I think they're really pushing the boundary a lot. Um, they're always, you know, horribly frustrating to play against. It's like the old Japan teams. You just didn't want to play. Um, it just, you never had the ball. You could never get it. You didn't understand how, where and how all these passes were being made. It was just like, just next level. And it was so frustrating. Um, I think honestly, it's, it's like, I don't think any one country has it all but everybody has something that's like pushing. I mean, I think you look at the NWSL, obviously I don't think we're, you know, as, as technical or tactical as some of the other leagues, but like, good luck getting out on that field. Let's see if you can run up and down the field for 90 minutes, literally crazy transition. Like, yeah, it may not be the most sophisticated way to play, but it's really difficult to play against. And it's, you know, it's, it's difficult. So I think a lot of different leagues kind of have that, little something. And then it's just a matter of when you get to the highest level, like which national team can sort of put it, put it all together. I mean, I still think we have, you know, in the U S um, you know, big strides to make and just our, our tactical understanding and our technical ability to execute what Vlaco wants us to execute. I think, you know, sometimes it's there and then it's like, you see the play happening and then we make a decision. It's like, well, clearly that was not what was the flow of the game. So we still have strides to make there, but I think you're still seeing sometimes in the 70th minute is when we, you know, just take off and you can't, you can't hang with us. So I think if teams can sort of put it all together, Spain is always really interesting to me. 
France, I feel like 2019, they just had an incredible team and I feel like didn't maximize their squad. Um, the fact that like Eugenie was playing out on the left wing was just a gift from God for the entire rest of the world cup teams. I was like, that's just crazy. Um, you know, England always right in there, obviously the super league, they're starting to get way more internationals. And I think that that league is becoming, um, a little bit more transitional, a little bit, um, more higher pace, which I think they need. So, I, I mean, I think the sort of standard bearer would be the Barcelona teams right now. Um, but I think there's still, you know, when you get to the sort of national team level, I think it's still a little bit to be decided. The World Cup 2023 is going to be bonkers. Yeah. Do you have a prediction for uh, the Euros this summer? Do you, would you take, would you say Spain could or will win it or, or not yet for them? No, I think they will. Yeah. yeah. I think they definitely could. Yeah. I'm going to be getting like all kinds of like, oh yeah, make it a thing. Yeah. Put me on the spot. No, I, I think that, I think that they're right there. And I think they have the, like, you always need like that just kind of like juice or that momentum or that confidence or something. And I just feel like they're, in a good place, French team. Um, I know a lot of players have been not called in or called in and it has some issues with, um, the coach and all that. So, um, you know, France always is one of my favorite teams, but I feel like they're a little disoriented right now. So yeah, I feel like Spain is just, and they're just so much fun to watch. I feel like sometimes too, the team that like starts to put on the show, you just get that kind of vibe. And, um, obviously, you know, you got the Ballon d'Or winner. So Lot to, yeah, lot to handle you can there. See, you can see the confidence, I think, um, mm -hmm. and their confidence. And they, they've stuck to that style for a long time, but the confidence mm -hmm. that it can work, um, I think, just builds exponentially. So it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so shifting a little bit to talk about um, soccer culture in the U.S., kind of in general, what aspect of soccer in the U.S. most defines its culture, in your opinion? Oh. I mean, I think on the women's side, it's individuality, which goes against soccer culture a lot. Um, I think, you know, the fact that it's like, it's a small thing and it seems trivially trivial and like not important, but like the fact that we don't wear, you know, the same polo shirt everywhere, or we don't wear the same tracksuit everywhere, or we don't, um, you know, all have to dress alike all the time. Like, I think that valuing and encouraging of individuality, of course, always at the service of the team. I think that's the only way that it, that it works. I think that is in a big part what, what sets us apart. Like, I think that when you get to be your full self on and off of the field and you get to express yourself that way and everybody's working to maximize their own individual talent in the framework of the team. I think that sets us apart. I think we get to enjoy ourselves. I think we get to enjoy the success that we have, which doesn't, I guess like takes away it being stale or it feeling like too much pressure or whatever. It's like, we always get to, you know, allow ourselves to be a little bit fun and creative. And I think, well, I think there's like, that's an interesting balance between wanting to professionalize and wanting to the, you know, the sport to grow. But I was like, I always think like, we've been one of the most successful cultures and environments in the entire world. Why are we trying to change to be like anyone else? If anything, I feel like people should be coming in doing studies on our team on how to, 
manage personalities and how to allow people to be themselves, but get them to buy in and all that. So I think for us, it's been that commitment to excellence while allowing people to be their self, be themselves. That's been a, a huge driver of our success. Yeah. I mean, you've certainly transcended the soccer field and a lot of, a lot of what you do and what you stand for, I think. And when I think about, like, I guess I've, I have so many questions based on what you're saying, but I'm trying to like condense it into a one or two. We've got time. We've got time. Yeah. Um, how, how would you say you've used your platform to, you know, do something bigger and take who you are as an individual and an athlete? And how do you see, you know, people, you hear the old, like, oh, just, you know, shut up and kick the ball or whatever people say that I think, I think we're moving beyond, but how are you able to balance, um, being who you are off the field and using the game for larger good and larger impact with still, you know, being an athlete first and foremost, like how do you see your life fitting together in those ways? Mm -hmm. I feel like for me, I've always been interested in other things and um, I've always wanted to have my identity sort of outside of sport. That's always, I think just naturally been, kind of part of me, but then I think being on the national team, um, and, and being different than a lot of people and coming from a different place and having a different path and, um, you know, coming out as gay and like not having a ponytail, which, you know, almost everyone, I think it's ponytails, but I didn't have one really. So it's like, you know, it's like, I think I was always a little bit different. So I always like valued that. And that was important, um, to me. And then I think honestly, it's just like, Sport is a business. And when people say like, oh, you're not focused or, uh, you know, doing anything else outside of if you don't think about soccer or sport like 24 seven, then you're not focused. And I'm like, you don't know that. You don't know what it's like to be me. You don't know. You're not an accountant like, 100% of the time. And it's kind of like this accusation that's actually like, you don't have my kind of talent. You don't know what focus is. Like, you don't know what it takes to be at the top level. You've never been there. And I think for me, they both kind of play on each other. It's like, I can focus and work really hard and be 100% in my sport and also see it as an entertainment property, which I think professional sports is. And I think when people say that it's not, it's just a way to keep the, you know, the sort of power out of the player's hands. And I think you can have fun with it. It's like, I get to do this sport for a living. Um, and I feel like, you know, especially with, um, the popularity of our team, I just sort of realized very early that we were going to have this platform, even just coming out um, before the Olympics. I was like, Oh, okay. This is like starting to make sense. Our fight with equal pay, even before the like fight with, you know, the Federation going through a number of contracts and being like, Oh, this doesn't totally seem right, but it doesn't seem like we have power. So how do we get more power? And it's like, we're the faces, you know, we're the ones out there, on the field. I always say that the US Women's National Team is like, you know, this like traveling circus, but it really is like a traveling multi-million dollar, tens of million dollar business. And the more entertaining you are on the field, of course, but the more, you know, just your actual play, but the more entertaining you are with your play, the more entertaining you are off the field. And then more business opportunities and more microphones. And then the platform's bigger. So then when you do want to um, you know, support Colin Kaepernick, or you want to talk about equal pay, or you want to support gay rights or whatever, you've built this sort of multi-dimensional 
fan base, entertainment, influential kind of platform that we can all stand on as a group. And by the way, we get to represent America, which is like America loves America. There's nothing America loves more than America. And so you get to sort of leverage all of that while still being able to do what you want on the field. And I think the the idea that like you have to be just like 100% focused all the time, that just doesn't line up for me. Some players want to be like that, but that just does that's not even reality for me. That just doesn't even make sense because that's not how I've done it and not what's been successful to me. So I think, you know, as female athletes as well, we don't really get the opportunity to just play our sport. We've always had to do more. So if we're going to have to do more, you might as well maximize it and do the absolute most that you possibly can. And I think you certainly have led the way um, on and off the field, I think, in showing that. Um, And so just looking at, you know, you talked a little bit about what is so American about American soccer culture. And I love what you said about the individuality within the team concept. How has soccer culture or, or women's soccer culture in particular changed since you entered the game? Is there something you can pinpoint that you think, wow, we've now it's really different than, you know, when you were coming onto the scene or maybe even watching as a kid? I mean, I think the, the influx of social media and us being able to talk to, you know, the, the outer world, directly has been huge because now it's like, I think traditionally, and it it still is this way, but it's certainly growing. Traditionally, it was was like, there was like Mia and then it was like Abby and there was like some supporting and then it was like Alex and, you know, Hope was in there also and, you know, Carly and me. And it's just kind of like, now it's like everybody can talk to everybody. And there's always, you know, sports is always going to culminate in, you know, a, a certain personality or a player. Um, you know, based on how well they're doing and that's fine. But I think the opportunity for everyone else to build a brand or to talk about things that they care about or, you know, talk about equality or, um, you know, be a part of different things has changed it a lot. And while we're sort of like, yes, we're one traveling circus US Women's national team, there's literally 23 brands within that or however many brands there are. And so I think it's allowed people an opportunity to, you know, make a lot more money or stake out a little piece in this kind of landscape that we normally wouldn't, which I think brings more fans in and brings more interest and, you know, allows there for allows there to be kind of a wider swath of people that can be interested in the games. I mean, you see, you know, people coming to the games, it's like, you can tell that dude loves the Eagles. And so he loves JJ that dude or that woman, like they are clearly, you know, have an Orlando pride hat on and like love Ashlyn and Allie. Um, I mean, I think Ashlyn's like one of the best examples. I, it's like, she's maybe started like two games and played three games in the last however many years. And she's like one of the biggest stars of the USMS national team. She's not even on the USMS national team anymore. <laughs> so I think just breaking open the sort of business box has given the whole team so much more power, which is really important. I think I, I, I don't want to always talk about just the business or the money or this or that, but like, that's what professionalizes things. Like that's why the NBA players have the kind of power that they do because they make that much money because they have that much control because they're starting to get on par with the owners or whatever it may be. And they can, you know, use that to 
again, talk about things that they want or, um, you know, build brands in whatever way. And I think it just gives female athletes who are traditionally cut out of all the power, all the money, all the decision-making a way bigger stake in everything. And I think you saw that this year with the NWSL, just the players coming together and realizing their collective power to do something and to change and to all stand together to demand better. And, you know, talking about the NWSL, I always think in what you said really speaks to, you know, more players having the platform and what social media has done to kind of break that open. And I've, I've felt for a long time that the next level for us as a country is to where your club environment can make you a star. So Ashlyn can be a star for the now Gotham FC, but you know, for her club team and people yeah. know she is still, and you don't need, it doesn't need to be restricted to this small group of players. Um, can you speak a little bit about NWSL and where you think it, it needs to go? What's the next step to get to that point, maybe where we have 30 stars on every team um, rather than just the national team? I mean, again, I think it has to start with the salaries of the players. If the players don't have financial freedom and they don't have financial power over their own lives, then they'll just always be in some sort of way out of balance of power with the ownership or with, you know, with the team. Um, They'll always be under threat of being manipulated. They'll always be under threat of being, um, abused in a myriad of different ways. Um, so for me, it's that the ability to say, I don't need this shit. I'm going to another team and actually having the power to do that will require teams to be better and require coaches to, uh, have better behavior and require teams to just in general, treat that player better and treat them in a more professional manner. So I think it, it has to start there. We have to start, um, you know, allowing players to have financial freedom and power over their own lives. The professionalism of the clubs in general has to get better. Um, The training facilities have to get better. The, you know, I I think for the most part now, I mean, I say this as, as my team who was playing on a baseball team, baseball field last year, which I don't think anyone would be surprised. It's totally unacceptable. I've said that to everyone. Everyone knows that. Um, Totally acceptable. But I think the the playing venues are getting much better. Um, and across the league, um, obviously Gotham's at Red Bull now. Portland is great. Um, I think Louisville has a new stadium. Kansas City's building a new stadium. Um, Angel City's going to be playing um, in Bank of America, I believe, and the new stadium there. So that's getting better. But the sort of day-to-day, because if you're going to ask me to play from basically the beginning of February or so, whenever preseason starts until October or November. And it's a grind every single day just to go to practice, just to get my lift in, just to get treatment, just to get the adequate medical care, just to play on a field that is decent. Like it's just not sustainable. It's like, even if you make a lot of money, it's just too, it's too hard to play like that. So I think the overall standards of the league and of the environments and training environments and the sort of day-to-day has to get better. And then I think, you know, for, I'll put this on brands and media and um, those sort of financial interests to just step up to the plate because the product is there. The product is great. The storylines are interesting. The league was outrageously competitive this year. Um, I think it's so entertaining. You have stars, like you have personalities 
in the league that you don't know about. Like we know about them because we play against them every week and we're like, oh, this player's got antics. But it's like, that's so entertaining. Like I can think of 10 people right now that like I would, I hate playing against, but I love, would love to have them on my team and all the different storylines. And I think that's on, you know, the media to get involved in a bigger way. That's on the ESPNs and the sports centers and, um, you know, all the big sort of interest holders in that place too do what's right and to do what's fair. And I think that's, what's frustrating sometimes it's like, well, they're like, wow, I mean, show, you know, show us that you're going to get a bajillion views and then we'll put you on. I'm like, Oh yeah. Cause that's how it works. You know, it's like, that's just absolutely ridiculous and it's not in the face. So I think sort of those three things, player salaries, um, all of the professionalism in terms of, you know, player experience all the time. Um, and then people, you know, investing in it because I think that the uh, we've proven that the the product is great and, the potential for growth is just massive because it actually is one of the best leagues in the world. Um, I think different to the MLS, which we've seen huge growth with. Um, and obviously they're doing you know very well from a business perspective, I believe they're not the best league in the world and they're not going to be anytime soon. And they're not going to, to garner the best players in their prime, but the NWSL will do that. You know, players want to play in America and they want to play in a tough league and they want to have a different experience. And, I think that, you know, with all of the U.S. internationals, especially getting to play in this league in different markets and then playing, you know, 20 home games a year, I think we have the potential to just be a star-studded um, show every week. Yeah. So want to talk a little bit moving into the future before we kind of wrap up with some uh, quick answer questions that I maybe will put you on the spot a little, but I don't know. Okay. Um, uh... Yeah. So I've talked to some, uh, you know, players who are in the beginning of their professional career on the podcast. And I always ask them about how they thought of what they're doing, you know, after their career is done. I feel like you may be a little closer to that. I'm not trying to put a timeline on yeah, your I'm career. certainly but, closer than those kids. Um, yes. A little closer. So have you, I mean, I'm sure you've thought about, about, you know, what you want to do next, quote unquote, even though I think you seem like somebody who will have a smooth transition because you're already involved in so many things that are not just on the field. Have you thought about your involvement in soccer specifically ongoing? And do you have any thoughts on if or how you plan to be involved in the game post-playing? I have not really. Um, I think there's a lot of other sort of clearer paths for me um, that, that make more sense. I mean, in terms of specifically staying involved, I always get asked if I want to coach and I'm like, oh my gosh, can you imagine me having to deal with all these personalities? It's just like, I don't like practice to begin with, you know, now I'm going to have to like make the practice and facilitate practice. It's like, you know, whole thing. And then I don't even get to play. And then it's like, something goes wrong. It's my fault. Even though it's probably not my fault. I told them to do something different. So I think coaching is, is out of the mix. I haven't done any of my courses either. So it's like, that's going to be a lot of, so coaching is out of the mix. Um, I think from like an official standpoint, I, I don't know if I would be involved in that way. I would love to help change the sort of media and business aspect or maybe not change, but, um, you know, help to level up and, and bring forward and use the platform that I have and the sort of crossover effect, um, to kind of put a blueprint out there for other players as well. Cause I think other players, you know, a lot of other players have that potential as well. And are sort of already doing it. Um, you know, eyes on Gotham over there. You guys, this tunnel is, it's great. You guys have great fashion on your team. And it's like, it's not re it's like, it's about the fashion. Cause I just love fashion for what it is, but it's about that crossover 
effect. It's about, you know, y'all are a New York team, like, you know, Midge and whoever should be like going to the Knicks games and people should know them as a sort of, you know, New York, New Jersey team and that kind of crossover bringing more people. So how do we like break that, um, you know, sort of box that we're in as, as a smaller league women's soccer. And it's like, actually we're not really, we have a lot of personalities. I mean, much like the WNBA has done, they've done an amazing job of, of having that kind of crossover. So to kind of like bring up the, the sort of business side of things and the media side of things, I think would be really interesting. I'm always interested in the media around women's sports. I mean, obviously something like just women's sports has been amazing together has been amazing. Um, anything that's really focused on, all the different storylines. Cause that's what we love about sports. It's like, I, I love that. I know that like LeBron James was out at, you know, Maverick Carter's birthday party and like Adele was there and like another NBA player was there and then he played bad the next day. So like, was he tired? And then it's Tuesday. So he's going to eat his tacos. Like this is what gets people totally involved in sports is the being like on the inside. So even like, all these trades and like the Ashton alley trade, this and that people are like, Oh my God. But if we had more information and people could like speculate, basically it's like this huge like game of speculation. What do you know? What do you not know? That's what sort of drives the interest in a big way. I think is getting people on the inside instead of just being like, you know, this team won two to one and that was kind of it. And then this team won three to one. And it's like, that's not really interesting. You got to be like a hardcore soccer fan to be interested in that. We need to sort of break out and bring people into the storylines more. So has a very long winded and kind of vague answer, but I think more on like the kind of peripheral, how do we bring the cool factor to the NWSL, which I think in a big way already has it. So I guess, how do we get more eyes on the cool factor that we have? No, I, th- I think it's fascinating. I see, I'm imagining uh, your next role here, your, your business you're going to start. So yeah. I love it. Um, so as you know, Body Armor sponsors this podcast and you're a Body Armor athlete. Shout uh, out. What ma- yes. What made you want to get involved with Body Armor? Um, I mean, I think for me, especially getting older, um, you know, they came in right at a perfect time for me where I sort of need to make a change. Like, of course, everything you do, all the training and yada, yada, yada is, is great. And everybody's going to do that, but it's like, what else can you have? So all the, the sort of all natural focus on health and wellness, um, everything I'm doing with my body, everything I'm putting in my body, um, is all hugely important. I'm big on diet and big on, um, you know, eating to maximize my performance on the field. And that's kind of the main thing. Um, and I just like the vibe. I feel like they're sort of a disruptor in a way. Obviously they just got, um, acquired by Coke, which is a huge deal, um, for them and just see the growth of the company as kind of this like scrappy little company that, um, has done so well and big been, uh, such a disruptor and like, uh, you know, a, an industry that's like sort of ubiquitous with sports is the sports drink and the other names, which I won't even say, but I feel like body armor and me was kind of a, a good little mix there. Love it. So we're going to finish up with three kind of quick hitters. Uh, you already did speak a little more in depth about this, but if you could pinpoint just in a quick phrase or a few words, what is most American about American soccer culture? Well, for the women's team, we win all the time. And that's what America loves about us. We win all the time and you can bank on having the best time because most likely we're going to win. And you know what we didn't even get to talk about is the U.S. men's national team, which I wanted to get into with you, but we didn't even, we ran out of time here. So we'll go oh, on to the next should. I know. We, we should. I can, if you have a little extra time, we should, I'll probably like start a controversy, but 
I'm, I'm well, happy to get well, into while it. We're there, we'll, we'll hold really quickly before the last two quick hitters. I did want to ask, this is a very um, specific question, but since we did talk about this the other day, I'm curious to hear your take on it. How far do you think the U.S. men's national team is from being, I'm not even going to say winning the World Cup, but I'm going to say winning caliber. So making a semifinal of a World Cup. I feel like any team who makes a semifinal could potentially win the World Cup. You you get into that realm. So how um, close or far do you think the team is from that? I think we are definitely our starting 11 or the majority of our starting 11 being one of the best players on their team away. And I, I think we aren't there. Um, obviously Christian, you know, he's, he's a superstar, tons of talent. Um, you know, when he's fit and healthy on the field, that's he's, he's lights out. He's great. I think Weston has that as well. Zach has that as well. I mean, he's in a little bit of a tough position as a goalkeeper, um, but I think he can still kind of do his thing and, and be dominant in that way. And I think until we have, you know, Serginio as well, um, who you mentioned the other day, I think until we have all of our players being one of the best players on, on a, they don't have to be like on the top teams, but like on a top team in a top league, I think that's how far we are away because you look at Belgium or, you know, France or, England, or, I mean, all of these top teams, it's like, that's tough. And I think we're in this kind of growth period. That is really exciting because we're, we're obviously seeing much more of our players over in Europe and playing consistently um, and, you know, starting and, and doing all that. But I think that's kind of how I would, how I would say it, because I, I think right now we have a couple of those players and we almost try to play to their level when I think we need to play to the core level of the team and then let, you know, let Christian be special or let Weston be special or, you know, let these other players be special. But like everybody is not, everybody can't be special because they don't have that ability. So, and, and it's hard because you need to obviously build that and try and you need to struggle in order to level up. And I think that's a little bit where they are, but I think we're, we're all of our best players being one of the best players on their team away. How, how long does that take? I mean, even obviously you don't know exactly, but are we talking next world cup, the world cup after this, is this like 50 years from now? Like what, what did you, what I mean, you I, I'm thinking like another, I mean, 15 years, at least I, I need to see our young, young, young players being in Europe already. I think yeah. that's the only way I think even when they go over there, unless you're a supreme talent, I think even when you go over it, you know, the 16, 17, 18, you have a lot formed by then. You have a lot of knowledge formed or unformed. You have a technical and tactical ability. And you have to think like all these other teams are doing everything that we're doing too. So it's not like they're standing still and we're just trying to catch up. Everybody's leveling up. So, I mean, I feel like I don't want to start a controversy. (laughs) I feel like, you know, whatever, but I think we are a number of world cups away before we're really seriously talking about you know, getting into a semifinal of a world cup, which of course, after then anything can happen, but I think we're at least 15 years away. Yeah. I mean, we could do a whole podcast about this, I think. Um, I know. Fascinating. (laughs) So what person moment or thing has had the greatest impact on American soccer culture in your opinion? I told you these were tough ones. (laughs) Oh man. I mean, it's gotta be 99 because I think everyone is like, 
that is what is possible. And there's no reason that we can't get back there. And there's no reason that that can't be the standard. I think that, and it's like, you see it in little pockets. Obviously Portland has from a club perspective, an incredible, you know, fan base. Like there's no reason that that cannot be the standard everywhere. So for me, I always think back to that and how exciting that was and, and how incredible that was. And I think that has to be, and still is the standard for everything. Okay. Last one. Your Mount Rushmore of American soccer, the four most influential faces or figures. No pressure. <laughs> oh my gosh. Or just first four that come to mind even. <sighs> All women or men and women? Anyone. I think it's gotta be women. I think we might be the foremost influential anyways. Um, Mia, for sure. Michelle Akers. <sighs> so stressful. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, Abby. I mean, this is tough. I mean, after that, it's like Carly's up there. Well, let me ask you, would you put yourself on there? Not even to embarrass you or make you feel self-conscious about it, but off the field, certainly off the field. I, I definitely would. Um, on the field. I, I don't know if I'm there. I, I think I've played a long time, but, and I think my game is a little bit different. I'm, I, I'm not, I don't have the gold production. Um, but I think certainly off the field, yes, on the field, I can put myself up there. I think it might be Mia. Oh, yeah. Michelle, Mia, Abby Carly. Love it. Well, yeah. I could talk soccer with you for many hours, but I, know. I think we got to wrap it up for today. No, I, I love hearing your description of what makes you different and um, your take on, on soccer culture in general. I think when I think of, cultural influencers, you, you know, that's who you are. And so to hear you speak of, about soccer culture and the culture of being an athlete and doing more off the field is really, really interesting. We, we see you do it all the time, but to hear your insight really, um, really was fascinating. So appreciate your time so much. And I can't wait for people to hear this. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you from the uh, new GM. Okay. <laughs> I was like, all my friends have like all retired from the national team, but now they're all like just becoming the bosses of everything. And I was like, Oh, is it, is everyone my boss now? What's going on? I like it. Got them into it. They're all coming yeah. back. Yeah, exactly. Back no, I love it. No, congrats on your new position though. That's incredible. Well Thank deserved. You. Thank you.